You're listening to Things You Should Know, and I'm your host, Andy Ngo. In this episode, I interview the esteemed British author and columnist, Douglas Murray. We discuss his new book, The Madness of Crowds, Gender, Race and Identity. Murray posits that the proponents of intersectional identity politics are undoing civil rights gains in the West in moving us down a path of division and inevitable conflict. Uh, The Madness of Crowds which is subtitled Gender, Race, Identity, is uh, my best attempt to run straight at what I think of as the madness of our time, the underlying madnesses of our time. I've been noticing for some years, as I think a lot of people have, you have, others have noticed, that there's a very strange thing happening. You notice it first by the things that get people's careers destroyed, the names that they get called homophobe, racist, transphobe, uh, uh, rape apologist, that sort of thing. And you notice that basically what our societies appear to be doing is to introduce a new form of ethics, a new form of religion. A religion and metaphysics based in anti-racism, for instance, uh, anti-sexism, anti-homophobia, anti-transphobia. All, by the way, perfectly good things. I mean, they are, you know, who wouldn't be in favour of opposing racism or sexism? But this, this is, um, in my view, an attempt to embed a form of ethics which is unwise for reasons that I explain in the book, which is that these, these are very fine products of liberal societies, but they're hideous foundation blocks. You, you can't make an ethics based on gay rights, women's rights, and so on, uh, for reasons that I try to put my finger on in the book. Um, these are all much more unstable components than we're willing to admit. And that's what really got me interested to begin with, which is why are we claiming we know so much about things we don't know about? And why are we, why are we not talking about things we do know about? Why did you choose to write about this as a follow-up to your 2017 bestseller, The Strange Death of Europe? One reason is that I'm attracted to very difficult subjects. Um, I sort of always have been. I'm attracted to things that people tell you not to talk about. Um, it's sort of always been like that. Ugly subjects, difficult subjects, uncomfortable subjects. And in The Strange Death of Europe, I, t- I tackled what I think is still, you know, one of the most uncomfortable subjects in our society, is the subject of immigration. Uh, but I noticed that there was this thing that was particularly emergent among you know, the youngest generation now growing up, that there were a set of presumptions they were making about what being gay is, what being of a different race from white might be, what being trans might be, and what being a woman is. They, they had developed a very different way of looking at these things, and they were incredibly certain, and in fact increasingly certain, about what you were allowed to say about it and what you were allowed to think about it. And um, I don't agree with this because I think, I think whenever anyone says you're not allowed to think about this, you're not allowed to talk about it, I'm very attracted to finding out what it is I'm not meant to know about. And there is this movement, which ugly enough as, as it is, we call intersectionality or social justice um, and, and, and more. These, these movements are real now. I mean, they've broken out from the academy They've broken out from weird liberal arts colleges on the west coast of America, and they're in the real world. You know, they've um, they've they've entered people's workplaces. They've they've entered people's offices. They've entered government. So so what seemed to be a really rather obscure and indeed laughable thing until ten years ago, well, people aren't laughing now. You know, my view is that everybody who is basically employed in any publicly funded institution is almost incapable now of telling the truth or speculating even about the truth, about a range of things, all of which I go into in this book. And so, in, strangely enough, the only people in society in a position that we who are still allowed to think out loud and to talk 
are people who who aren't employed uh, or only employed by themselves or only only answerable to the public um because all institutions have become weak and cowardly and fearful and as a result embed this new ridiculous metaphysics ridiculous as i see it at the very least contradictory the book is divided into four sections gay women race and trans why did you pick these four subjects well i thought they were clearly the ones which kept blowing people up <laughs> um and i started with gay because in some ways it's the easiest and it's the only one on which i have a small pass a sort of allowance slip you know i can't claim to be a woman or i could claim to be a woman i don't want to um <laughs> because i'm gay i thought at least people will see that I'm not approaching any of these things from a position of hate. I'm approaching them from a position of inquiry and saying, what are the flaws within the assumptions we're making? And um, there's a lot of things to say about the gay chat. But one is, I I noticed some years ago that gay had stopped being about being gay and it had become about being political. And it started to worry me because I don't think being gay is about anything much other than being gay. Somebody said to me the other week, you know what all gay people have in common? And I interrupted her and I said, they're gay. That's it. There ain't anything other than that, you know? And it worries me that gay has been made political. And there are examples I give in the book. But basically, among other, among many other things I say, and I tread on every very, very sensitive subject about being gay, <laughs> gay parenting, everything. Uh, But one of the things that started to trouble me was I noticed some years ago there was a big divide, people who are gay and people who are queer. And I use this division and it's I think it's the first time it's been done. But I say, look, some people are gay and they just they're attracted to the same sex. And that's it. That's the end of the project. Other people think being gay is merely the first step to pulling down the patriarchy, uh, pulling apart capitalism and so on and so forth. This is a very, very big divide that nobody identifies, but we need to, because most gay movement leaders are, to some extent, involved in the second of those camps, whereas I think most gay people are probably involved in the first. But if it's if they're gay and they don't involve themselves in the pulling down of the patriarchy and so on, they can now be accused of basically not being gay. <laughs> Which is fantastically stupid. Uh, and I, I give the ex- a famous example of Peter Thiel when he comes out at the Republican, Con- uh, uh, Republican Party convention in 2016. He comes out not, not as gay, but as a gay and as a Republican and as a supporter of Trump. And the main gay magazine, America Advocate, the next issue, runs a piece saying Peter Thiel isn't gay. He may sleep with men, but in no other way is he gay. And what I started to notice was that this had happened in every single one of the difficult issues of our time. It happened in black there were people who were claiming being black isn't about being black. It's a political project. I thought, well, that's interesting because that's what they're saying about the gays as well. And then there were women who were meant to behave in a certain way. You're not being a woman, you know? You're letting down the sisterhood. I thought being a woman was just being a woman. Then I can do whatever I want. No, no, no. You've got to be in line with a political project. And then the fourth of them, of course, trans is the most political of all in some ways and the one that's come along fastest. And there is an element of that that is entirely a political project for reasons I give in the book. So I just wanted to get into all this because I noticed in each one, not only were the same career explosions happening and the same lives being torn apart, but the same claims were being made and they were similarly erroneous. I'm gay, you're gay. This is the most that I've seen you write about gayness, actually. Yes. I've been following your work for quite a bit. Was that hard? Because I, you've, to your credit, you've always kept your identity for the most part out of your writings hmm. and your views. Yeah. Um, well, but to, to dedicate a quarter of your book to, hmm. to gayness... Well, I mean, I have to say, I take a rather old-fashioned view, which is that um, the value of your ideas does not rely on your identity. And this is a really old-fashioned view now. I mean, almost nobody holds that view. <laughs> it's it's all about the identity. It's not about the ideas. Uh, I go into this a bit in the in the madness of crowds. The uh, 
The idea that it's the speaker, not the speech that matters, you know. People are un less and less interested in what the content of the speech is. They want to know who the speaker is. And I noticed this many years ago with the, the tendency of people to start questions with speaking as a, and I would just, I don't care what you're speaking as, you know, particularly if people say speaking as a man or speaking as a woman, most of the time, like, yeah, yeah, we got that. We, we can tell, we can tell. Um, but uh, so I've always disliked the idea of, of people saying, this is what I am and therefore, because what it means is you're basically saying, listen to me more. Coleman Hughes, uh, you know, a very talented uh, young American writer who happens to be black, uh, 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 wrote something I quote in the introduction to the book a while ago, where he wrote somewhere uh, that he had got the sense at various times in his career as a student that there were people who, who behaved around him as if there was a special type of wisdom you get from being black. It's a very interesting observation there, because I think almost everybody knows there's a ringing there. They know they know what he's saying, even if they don't have exact experience of it. There is something like that now in our society. But as I say, I mean, no, you're right. I've not written about... I don't write in the book about me being gay. I mentioned in passing various things. But it, it's it's an attempt to address some of the things which have been on my mind for a long time and which I know from gay friends has been on their minds but which nobody has written about. And there's one thing in particular which I... I mean, I, I have had a couple of gay friends who've read the book and are slightly horrified that I've been willing to say some of the things I've been willing to say about the gay movement and about gay people because I, they think I'm somehow letting people down in being quite so uh, honest about certain issues. But our society is trying fundamentally to pretend that people are totally the same and that there are fundamental differences and my view is that there are some differences there are some differences between men and women there are some differences between heterosexuals and homosexuals but that in pretending there are none we create certain problems for instance i'm very uncomfortable with the issue of pretending that two gay men have a roll around one night in the sack and then they announce to the world the next day that they're pregnant. If you're referring to those headlines that will um, focus on some celebrity gay couple mm. that something like we're expecting a baby. Yeah, yeah, that Dustin Lance Black and Tom Daly yeah. are expecting a baby, the BBC website says. Well, I know that that didn't happen just because they, you know, had a nice meal one night and, you know. Uh, and I think there's just something dishonest about that. It, there's something odd about it as well, because we live in an age where, quite rightly, you're not meant to write women out of the story of life. And if, if there's an example of writing a woman out of a story more than just pretending she didn't mother the child, I don't know what it is. And I don't like that sort of things. I just think it's, I think it's dishonest in lots of ways. And I think there's lots of things like that that we're doing in order to try to... Lots of little fibs and lies that we're telling... And I just think, among other things, that, I mean, uh, well, sorry, one of the other things I get into is, and I say this at the end of the gay chapter, and what I think a lot of people are going to find quite hard to, 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 to accept, but they, basically, in all of these things, what, what, what might the plausible reasons be that some people have prejudices? You know, that's a really difficult one. That's a really ugly one to open up, but it's interesting, very interesting. Is there ever going to be a time when everybody thinks that gays, they're totally comfortable with gay? And I say, I don't think there will be. I think there are certain things about gay men in particular, which are slightly unnerving to certain things in the order of, of many heterosexuals' lives. And there's a sexual dynamic to this, which I go into in the book. I think people haven't explored, for, they have explored in the past, but they haven't for a long time. And it's part of the same dynamic that affects women, and particularly comes in with trans. And the dynamic is something like this. I try to sum it up at one point, that for heterosexual men, women seem to be the holders of some kind of magic. They have the thing that men want. But gay men seem to be in on the secret. They seem to know something. And it's why a lot of straight women have is one of the reasons not the only one it's one of the reasons a lot of straight women have have gay male friends who they can talk about stuff with 
And it's a reason why some heterosexual males really, like, you must have had this experience, I certainly have, that I, a certain type of heterosexual male just wants to pump you for information. Because <laughs> they think you might help them unravel the mystery of women and what it is that women want. And I say it's like having a bilingual friend. <laughs> but in that case... It is a bit different. I mean, I, people don't want to talk about this stuff because they they want to say, if you talk about it, you'll make more people kill gay people or something. More trans people will commit suicide, you know. But this stuff is really interesting. And we've, like, forbidden ourselves from talking about it. I came out rather kind of late in my adulthood for somebody of my generation. It was a number of years later before I actually went to my first uh, Pride event. And mm. I mean, I, I see it for what it is now, at least in, in the West, it's just, um, it's exhibitionism. It's mm. trying to, it's like, to me, it's like almost making a mockery of what it would, what it means to, to be gay. Mm. Um, what are your thoughts on, Pride. Well, I have the same instinct as you do. Um, uh, but um, my view is if there's something you should feel no shame in, then nor should you feel any pride in. Mm. Um, I don't think there's any particular shame in being gay, but I don't think there's any particular pride in it. I don't, I don't think gay people are worse than straight people, and I don't think they're better. You know, and pride um, exacerbates the idea that gay people are somehow better. More fabulous, for instance. There's one. Boring heterosexuals and the fabulous gays. Now, there are some gays who are fabulous and there are some straight people who are fabulous. It's not, it's not like in the water. I think that there's something very strange that's happened with Pride. Um, I quote uh, a couple of authors in the book, in the Matters of Crowds on this, who, who talk about their disappointment. This is in the 70s, 80s and 90s. Their disappointment that whereas, for instance, in the March on Washington with Martin Luther King, the great moment of the American civil rights movement, there was, my God, there was a deep, I mean, the deepest imaginable human solemnity about what was happening that day as black Americans were, were demanding the treatment they deserved. And when the March on Washington happened in, was it 1992, of the gay rights movement, it was filled with the stuff you describe. I mean, like exhibitionism. Um, if if the March on Washington of Martin Luther King had included like a black fetish sex section, the thing would not have been taken so seriously, and nor would the intent have been so serious because nobody could possibly have thought that that was what they should do. So, what was it about the gay rights movement that was always always flawed by that? There was always a flaw in it of people who couldn't resist the urge to do that now i think by the way this is something which there's something in this which comes towards the trans debate which i get into in gruesome detail and that's that there's a very interesting thing that's happened we are trying at the moment to construct in the form of ethics in our society afresh and there aren't very many bases of this ethics but one of them which isn't a bad place to start is don't be a dick to people who've got a hardware issue so, for instance, why do we all agree pretty much, I'm sorry to say with some prominent exceptions, that you don't take the piss out of somebody who's disabled? Why wouldn't you do it? <laughs> because it's not like the guy decided to be disabled. You know, he didn't choose to be disabled someday. It's something he can't do anything about. So we recognise that it's just horrible behaviour to think that you should mock somebody for being disabled. So that's one of the bases of our ethics. You, you don't mock people for things or you're not, you don't judge people for things they can't help. One of the really interesting things that happened in the gay rights movement from the 70s onwards, it sped up in the 80s and 90s, was the movement to make gay not a lifestyle choice, but a hardware issue. And I go into this. Hardware, not software. And it worked. My view is that gay is probably hardware. It's mainly hardware but it's a bit more software than people are willing at the moment to admit, particularly, I would suggest, among uh, female 
uh, uh, female homosexuals, lesbians. I think there's more fluidity than we want to admit. And there may be a bit more fluidity in male homosexuality than people are willing to admit. There is, and I quote some of the sources of this, some fairly good evidence that that there's a software element somewhere, possibly, in some people. But gay rights movement realised it would get furthest, fastest, if it said completely hardware. No gay can do anything about this, so don't be a dick. And the interesting thing about this is that the trans rights movement has learned a lesson from the gay rights movement. And the trans rights movement, the trans used to be fairly, ex- fairly explicitly, obviously, to a considerable degree at least, about sexual attraction. And in the 21st century, the run for trans... You mean the sexual attraction of dressing as the opposite sex? Yeah, the sexual element of everything from wanting to wear an item of the opposite sex's clothing to imagining yourself in the body of the opposite sex. Trans has tried to say this has nothing to do with sex, it's hardware. In fact, it's, it's, it's so little to do with sex, we don't even want you to discuss the sex element anymore. There was a quite famous book that came out about 10 years ago um, about transsexualism, which just got into a horrible set of trouble because the author looked into the sexual element in trans. And the trans rights campaigns were furious with him for daring to open that up. It's like, don't talk about us and sex. We want you to talk about the serious hardware issues of trans. But we don't know if trans is hardware or software. We don't know enough. But it's interesting that they are pushing to make it hardware. Really hard. They are pushing so hard to make it hardware. And by, by, by I'm jumping around a little here, but bear with me just to make one other point, if I may. One of the interesting things is, and one of the reasons I think that our societies are deranging, is because we're, we are trying simultaneously to, to say gay is hardware, trans is hardware, but being a woman is a software choice. <laughs> Well, that is just dementing. Well, that's... I mean, in the whole queer ideology is full of contradictions. I'm just thinking about how, with all this focus now on on pronouns and how you can choose your pronouns, for example, you can be um, she, her, but also they, them, or non-binary, gender non-conforming. It, and, and, you, and the thing is, you can choose it. You can be fluid. It That would seem to undermine this argument that's been built up for so long about we are born this way, right? <laughs> exactly. Of course it is. No, I mean, the list of contradictions now is really considerable. Um, and you're right. I mean, I mean the way I put it, it's, it's trying to run two programs at the same time on our societies, and it doesn't work. It can't work. And that's why we have this grinding, painful noise all the time, and, and noise it is. Um the by the way that specific one you you mentioned the, the pronouns by the way, there's there's one upside to that which is some of us who are sticklers for grammar you know used to say people didn't know what nouns and pronouns were anymore but everyone knows what pronouns are now it's come from a rather <laughs> surprising direction this element of grammatical purity i wasn't expecting it from there but anyhow um let me throw one out there when people say I want to be known as he, him, her, his, they, them, theirs. Um, are we sure it isn't longhand for look at me? Look at me. Are we sure? Let me push that if I may for a moment. I would say it's absolutely certain that in some proportion, I won't say what, because I'd just be guessing, but in some proportion of cases, it is, look at me. Does anybody know how to delineate between look at me and a transsexual person asking you to give them the correct pronouns? I mean, somewhere there must be that line. Is anyone interested? (laughs) So, like, why, why, why does nobody want to discuss that? If we're going to, for instance, maul the language, and mauling the language it would certainly be, um, 
we ought to know that and take that one step further. Okay, let's pretend we're not sticklers for language and most people aren't, so so what? Let's say we don't pretend about the bathrooms thing. Um, uh, yeah, it's up for grabs. Are we sure that in the course of not being interested in this, we don't mind medical experiments being done on children? Sure. And let me, if I may, take that one one step further. Let's say this thing we pretend we know loads about in trans is something we're all going to follow through. How do gay men and women really feel about that? I can tell you how I feel about it. I can think of a lot of friends of mine, people I've known, who were effeminate as young men. And did you have this? Yes, when I was young, actually. Um, you know, if I, if I was a child um, today, instead of in the 90s, I think maybe I would have been diagnosed with gender dysphoria. Right. I, the toys, for example, the colours that I liked, just all stereotypically girl stuff. And I used to, when I was young, um, you know, if I would wear, like, my older sister's dress, like, really wish, like, I wish I could be a girl type of thing. Right. And, of course, and once I, you know, now I look back and I'm just like, wow, I'm really glad that I didn't, there wasn't any type of medical intervention early on. Right. What we're talking about now, I would submit, is what loads of gay men and women are talking about in private and almost nobody dares to talk about it in public. But we need to. Because if if a young gay... If a young person who's likely to grow up to be gay, you know, a happy gay man or a happy uh, lesbian, if, if, if society says, no, you are actually not going to grow up to be gay, you're... We should, we're going to make you into the other sex. It's like, that is totally against the gay uh, cause. It's, it's against gay people. It's profoundly undermining to gay men and women. And and this is in LGBT. <laughs> this is this acronym that's meant to all go together. It's all, I mean, I mentioned in the book, I'd, gay men don't get on that great with gay women in my experience. They don't have much in common. Neither are very good about bisexuals. Uh, and they have almost nothing in common with people who say they're trans. But everyone says LGBT. Um, okay, that's that's a minority and a minority. A much more interesting one is why the trans thing runs against the women issue. Because, I mean, with women, we're not talking about a minority. We're talking about 50% of the species. So something that profoundly undermines that is of, in is of interest. And again, I mean, I go into this in the trans chapter... All these women keep on being destroyed because they refuse to concede a bunch of things about their identity. They refuse to concede. And by the way, that's that's the one that you know. I said to you, you know, Peter Thiel isn't gay because he uh, he he's uh, he he turns out to be a Trump supporter. Uh, um, Kanye West isn't black once he comes out for the Republicans. And uh, the, one of my favourites is Jermaine Greer, the most prominent, famous and rightly celebrated feminist of the late 20th century, has been made not a feminist anymore because she's failed at the trans one. Jermaine Greer should fail at the trans one because the trans thing runs against the understanding of womanhood that Jermaine Greer has spent her life talking about. So everyone, I suppose the point is, as it were, one, one overarching point is everyone's trying to build this big coalition. And I say it can't work. So don't lean on it this hard. Don't lean on it this hard because it's not it's going to break. Well, it, well, in this world now where you can pick and choose your identity at any given moment, I wonder why those the people who, who hold to that worldview refuse to apply it to people who want to change their race. <laughs> like, I don't understand the, like why that consistency doesn't apply. It's ent entirely the same logic. Right. Well, you know, the I write about in the book, the Hypatia controversy. And Hypatia is the feminist uh, philosophy academic journal. Yes. Not everybody listening necessarily takes it monthly. Um, so I think it's worth... But... <laughs> I mean, I, I, I've read it since I was a boy. But um, <laughs> Hypatia ran a, a piece by a, a, an untenured academic called Rebecca Tuvel, 
2017. And um, she, she asks exactly the question you just asked. And it's one of the most interesting and painful questions of the time. If you can change from being a man to a woman or a woman to a man, why can't you change from black to white or white to black? This is, I, I address this in the race chapter of my book, which um, opens up cans of worms like all of the other chapters, but really, really interesting ones. Because, of course, we have had attempts in recent years to do so-called transracialism. Now, there are very prominent cases. I mean, in our own lifetimes, you know, the most famous pop musician in the world Mm. changed race in front of everyone's eyes or changed skin colour in front of everyone's eyes. And we sort of went along with it. I mean, we all said that's a bit strange. Everyone, Everyone noticed, but we sort of parked it in a certain way. Uh, it's certain, I mean, I don't, it'd be interesting to know how the Michael Jackson thing would happen now if somebody tried it. I think it's a lot worse. But, of course, there was this extremely famous case several years ago of the case of Rachel Dolezal, who said that she was black, worked for the local chapter of the NAACP, <laughs> and turned out to be of Austrian, German, or Czech heritage, which is about as white as you can get. Uh, <laughs> and... Of course, she's found out uh, and um, had been trying to pretend to be black by the somewhat stereotypical thing of adding bronzer and frizzing up her hair, which is sort of sort of embarrassing when you when you just reflect on that. Anyhow, she of course is found out with this, and and so Rebecca Tuvel opens up this question. Okay, everyone came down on Rachel Dolezal, but should they have done? Shouldn't we maybe think that this is no stranger than a trans thing? And if I may say so, there are two particularly interesting things that came from that affair. The first was, once again, there was a reminder that black, like all of these other things, like gay, like women, like trans, at some point stops being about the identity and becomes about politics, only and purely about politics. So um, Michael Eric Dyson is interviewed on MSNBC during the Dollars Affair. He's asked his opinion on this because at that point, some black Americans were saying, maybe some people were saying, how dare you? And others were saying, okay, she seems to be trying to take on our causes and concerns and, you know, we should be welcoming. Dyson on live interview says, when he's asked about this, says, uh, I think that she took on our causes. She took on our concerns. And, and he says, I think most black Americans would think they had more in common with Rachel Dolezal than, say, Clarence Thomas. Mm. Okay. So then, if that's the case, being black isn't about being black. It's about being left-wing in a very particular way, which I submit is really dangerous. Like the left-wing gay magazines saying you're not gay unless you're left-wing. Why is it dangerous? Well, it's dangerous because it says to people the characteristic is not a characteristic that we simply notice and then get over, but the fundamental thing that directs the political orientation of that person throughout their lives. It should dictate their political concerns, their campaigning concerns, their life, everything. I mean, my hope, as I say in the book, the hope of some of us was that we sort of got beyond these things, that that the personal characteristic thing was sort of unimportant. And then we got on to the person. But when he says this, he says, not just that a white woman who pretends to be black, so long as she campaigns politically in the right direction, we can pretend is black. But the black man who is undoubtedly black, Clarence Thomas, and has an unbelievably distinguished career, is not black, really. Because he's let us down in some way by being conservative or something else. Now, the second point on this is The View exposed this very clearly, um, which I'm sure everyone listening watches, like me, daily, religiously. But on The View, we actually got the truth about why Rebecca Tuval stepped on the landmine and why she was blown up. Um, Where um, Rachel Dolezal goes on and is completely torn apart by the panel, who are all American women of ethnic background, and several are black. And they say the same thing. They say, uh-uh, you are not getting away with this. Because 
You are not allowed to pretend to be black because you haven't had our experiences. You haven't lived the experience of being a black American. Here's the thing. That was exactly the argument that feminists used against trans. But it didn't work for women. But it does work at the moment for black. And that's just one example of the derangement of our time. Because half of the species is saying, like Julie Birchall, who I quote in my book, hang on, you, you haven't gone through what women have gone through. You haven't had to deal with teenage boys. You haven't had to deal with, you know, inappropriate advances or groping. You haven't had to deal with labour and childbirth. You haven't had to deal with the menopause. You're, you can't now come along and say you're a woman. Turned out you can but the same argument, it didn't work. It, it, it does stop it if it's trans-racialism um, for the time being. But it's only that. It's only that thing on the view of the lived experience has not been your lived experience that for the time being is holding back people from having the right to say, I'm whatever colour I want to be. How do you think this intersectional social justice worldview seem to have become so mainstream in in the anglosphere um it's a really interesting question because it's, it's not as bad elsewhere is it it's basically an anglosphere thing there are versions of it elsewhere i mean across europe most countries have bits of it but no yeah, yeah. Uh, but nowhere is it as bad as it is in the anglosphere i mean a little example but a sort of pertinent one when the me too thing broke out and you could see quite quite early on that although there was a completely um reasonable and indeed overdue accounting of some absolute scumbags who'd got away with stuff for too long. Nevertheless, everyone could see that it also too fast went into things that were no way of the same seriousness. And sometimes were just like bad dating, bad sexual etiquette, bad dating etiquette. Um, when that was going on, no, nobody was... Almost nobody was willing to say that in the in the English speaking world, and in America, the, if a woman if a woman put her head above the parapet on that, it was, she was shot at immediately. In France, one hundred very prominent women, including Catherine Deneuve, and prominent thinkers, female writers, and others, signed a joint letter saying, "No, this is going too far. W women need to get on with men." still. Now, I just couldn't imagine that letter being signed by a hundred prominent American women. You just couldn't find them. There aren't enough brave American women at the moment. Like, there aren't enough brave uh, women in general, just like there aren't enough brave gays or enough, you know. I just, there aren't enough people willing to, to run against this consensus. And there damn well should be by this point. There should be. Uh, you know, the sexes have got to get on for the interests of the species. <laughs> you know, I mean, God knows it's not my business, but I would like them to get on. And in order to get on, they have to have reasonable chances of engagement. And I say in my chapter on women, what the, what the, what the odds we are stacking against that now are. And it's unbelievable. You know... Uh, still even now in the age of dating apps, like 15 to 20% of people are, are going to meet their, their life partner in the workplace. Okay, what are the rules in the modern workplace about men and women and what they're allowed to do? Basically, if you're a man, you've got to ask a female co-worker you like out for coffee once with a 100% success rate that the person you ask out for coffee turns out to be your wife and life partner. <laughs> And if, if you happen not to hit the bullseye the one time you throw the dart, you're toast. <laughs> that is a totally unsustainable position. And everybody knows it. But too few men and women, too few on this occasion heterosexual men and women, are willing to identify the absurdity of the position we are all being told to hold. Do you think gay men have it easier in this regard? in spaces where there's sexual tension, there's kind of a give and take that goes both ways. And actions that may be perceived 
um, by some woman as harassment would is just, I think, in gay culture, just part of the game. Well, that's true. I mean, um, there's probably a greater tolerance of it. Yeah. But that's because a gay men uh, and gay women have a great advantage over their heterosexual counterparts, which is they know what the other per- party wants. And that's a very, very big advantage. Um, the source of much great comedy and literature and indeed tragedy, but mainly comedy, is the inability of men to know what women want. But one of the main sources of humour across the, the centuries, across the millennia indeed, is men don't understand women, but women really understand men and they know how to leave them on. I talk, by the way, in a chapter on women about this, this, this form of female power, which and there are so many forms of female power, like there are forms of male power, but we only focus on the, fe- on the male power. And the fo- forms of female power that women are able to wield are extraordinary from the point of view of, 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 of you know, the dynamics between the sexes. And we've pretended it doesn't exist at all in our societies. But, um, but to get back to the gay question which you asked, yeah, I mean, um, I say this is one of the things that's slightly unnerving for some heterosexuals about gay men in particular, which is that the unnerving thing is the same thing that's slightly unnerving about actual transsexual. I mean, people who have actually transitioned across the sexes which is that they're in the situation that, you know, in, in the metamorphoses of Ovid, uh, when two of the gods, the male god and the female god, have a row about who benefits more from the act of sex, they call on Tiresias to give the verdict, because Tiresias was a man in, in Ovid, stumbles upon two snakes, hits them with a stick, and is turned into a woman lives as a woman for seven years then stumbles upon the snakes again and hits them again and goes back into being a man. And so these gods in Ovid ask Tiresias to be, to give the verdict on who gains more from the act of love, men or women. Because as they say, you Tiresias are the one who knows both sides of love. And Tiresias gives the verdict that women... Uh, enjoy the act of love more and for this the male god blinds Tiresias anyhow I find the legend of Tiresias fascinating because I think it is it, it speaks to a very deep truth um, now if you read the accounts of for instance Jan Morris who I'm an enormous admirer of as a writer who wrote a book about being a very early transitioner across the sexes called Conundrum in the 1970s um there are things there that speak very deeply and profoundly to this issue. But I think it's there among gays as well. Um, and the unnerving thing is that gay men in particular would know both sides, both, know both sides of love. And uh, it's a deep advantage in some ways, a disadvantage in others. And... Yes, there are probably things that gay men and women have agreed, have put up with, which their heterosexual counterparts now no longer would. And the the problem for women is that they they don't want, they're they're not sexually attracted to the men they're now making. They're trying to make these nerve-ridden, emasculated, unsexual, not chasing women men, and then, then... say, where are all the men? Well, you know, you fucked over all the men. You tried to make them into these weird non-men. You can't now come along and claim that there aren't any men around. You, you've terrified the men into not being able to go near you. So you can't complain about that. Well, you can, but, you know, you should think about it. The, the One of the problems in this, if I can say so, there is, again, there's a sort of gay help that can go in here, is that my experience is, is that gay people have to learn quite fast how to draw the lines swiftly. Um, you learn how to say no. And it's easier for men on men because there's a power dynamic certainly there that is different with men and women, for sure. Um, but here's something else. You see... One of the, there's a set of things I say throughout the book. I pose a set of things that are additionally deranging in our society because they're things that are demanded of us which aren't possible 
For instance, a very prominent one in our societies now is the right that is asserted by absolutely ridiculous people that they shouldn't be ridiculed. And, you know, ridicule isn't nice. But if you're totally ridiculous, a preposterous person, saying preposterous things, you do not have the right to not be ridiculed at any point. It's, it's just, it's an unsustainable claim. But one of the more widespread unsustainable claims of our time is that you can be sexual without being sexualized. That's one way of thinking of it. Or let me put it another way. That you can play in the sex area. You can dabble in that with somebody and at any moment be able to say, I am not in that area. And that's, I think uh, gay men tend to have to learn quite fast how to do that. Um, how to bat it away if they don't want it. And that generally speaking, not always, of course, there are, there are certainly cases of assault and all that sort of thing. But um, uh, generally speaking, generally speaking, gay men know and gay men and women le learn what it is to be in the sexual area. Now, men and women who are straight know this as well, but they keep on being these additional problems that are thrown in the way, such as the claim that, I mean, let me give an example. If you're in a, like a sexualized space, there, we all know there are such places. Gay and straight nightclubs, for instance, are sexual places. Somebody may put a hand on somebody in such a place in a way that's different from if it happened on the metro uh, in New York. Why? Because the metro is not meant to be a sexual place. It's not a place where that's in the air. Quite the opposite in my experience. But, but a nightclub is such a space. And a lot of the things that are being demanded at the moment that are making these things unnecessarily difficult are people saying, I demand the right to be in the sort of area and the sort of place where it's a bit sexual. But, how, but if you dare come near me, I'm going to be Mother Teresa to you. You know, I'm just going to pull on the nun's habit and say, how dare you? I was just enjoying a drink. And that's a sort of unreasonable... It's not unreasonable to say you should never do anything you're not comfortable with. But there are areas that are definitely more complex than we are currently pretending. Our society currently pretends that all this stuff is totally easy, you know? But it's all straightforward. I had this, I relay this in the book at one point. I relate a, a, a discussion I was in with a, a group of uh, women talking about this about the workplace and it's like somebody said yeah, it's 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 really not that difficult Douglas I said no clearly it is quite difficult or we wouldn't be talking about it you know but we're pretending about this like so many other things we're pretending it's just so easy and we know what we're doing and you know we know some of what we're doing but it's a lot more complex than we're currently pretending so I live and work in Portland and I wonder why did particular anecdotes out of the city feature in your book? Well, Portland is obviously like the one of the central deranging hubs of the universe at the moment. I mean, one of the one of the places that's just imbibed and now breathes out the worst ideas. You know, the food wars I, I, I mentioned in the book, the Portland food wars, where the, the society seems. To, to dement around a group of people honestly believing that somebody might be trying to bring back colonialism through the backdoor method of opening a restaurant in Portland. Which, if you were going to try to start colonialism again, I really think that's not the way you'd do it. <laughs> but these, um, and these people whip themselves up into fury and they, uh, they behave worse than almost anybody can behave, as, as I don't need to tell you, as you very well know. But I'm interested in why this is happening, and I go into it in the book, why these very, very bad ideas have caught on in certain places in particular. And they have. And I think there's a set of very interesting reasons why. One is that this might, these things might all be the games we play when we've run out of other games. Mm. You know? There's a view of history which, <coughs> which you can take from... Marx, you can take from Hegel. 
but that when a, a set of things is basically sorted out, I mean, again, people are going to push back on this, but when basically your living standards are better than any previous generation, when you're luckier than any of your forebears have ever been, when you're basically safer than at any point in human history, maybe we can't cope with that. And a certain proportion of people, not all, but a certain proportion, and it might be very large in certain places, basically decide that they're bored of the safety. There's all sorts of criticisms you can make of Donald Trump. But it seems unlikely to me that Nazism is genuinely going to be introduced in America in 2019. Very unlikely. And I, you know, I know a fair amount of European politics and how that happened in the mid-20th century in parts of Europe. So why are these people in Portland behaving as if they are on the verge of Kristallnacht? And in an effort to avert Kristallnacht, you'll do Kristallnacht. And my, my view is I've come to the conclusion that these terrible ideas about gender, about race, about LGBT, this intersectionalism, the intersectionality, is something to do at the end of history. Something happened after the financial crash of 2008 that meant that these bad ideas that were hanging around wafted into the mainstream almost like a virus when the body got a bit weak. You know, the capitalism, democracy's immune system has been a bit weak in the last decade for totally understandable reasons. And into it, and I explain in the book the intellectual structure of how this happened, into it came this very particular intellectual project, intersectionality in particular, And it came straight in. And our immune system was not strong enough to keep it out. And I think it should have done, because I think it's going to derange people much, much more unless we find a way out. And part of the point of the latter portion of my book is to help people find the way out, which I think I know. I think I can explain it. Because we need to get out of it. If if America in particular, keeps going down this road. You're going to show how, in the 21st century, a diverse society cannot get on. Cannot get on. You will demonstrate to the world that different races cannot live with each other, that the sexes cannot live with each other, that gay people cannot live with straight people. I mean, (laughs) it doesn't get worse for demonstrating bad ideas than that. You bring to such clarity the, this paradox of the the world that these people are trying to the vision that they're trying to protect us from. They're moving us closer to through their actions. Yes. And in the book, you bring up numerous uh, anecdotes out of Portland that uh, are worthy of ridicule, and they're outrageous, and they're they're funny. But what um, what we're witnessing in, in my city and what I've experienced personally is um, when intersectionality becomes a militant worldview mm. in that um, Antifa's movement has been around for, for decades, and particularly in Germany and in mm. Europe. And in the American context, it's mutated to a slightly different form than what's seen on on this continent in that it's taken on aspects of intersectionality. So you will see them um, really emphasize um, the the trans radicalism as part of the movement. And these people genuinely believe, the ones who are coming out into the streets and engaging in the street brawls, they really believe that we're living in a, an age of ascendant fascism. Mm. You know, at uh, any moment, um, this this cosmic battle will um, will happen, and you know they're going to be the vanguard who who are mm. going to be the protectors of the, the marginalized and the oppressed. So, well, 
If I may say so, I mean, there are several things going on there, which is just worth very quickly t running at. First thing is the people who genuinely believe that. Now, you, you've had more experience up close with some of these people than I have or ever want to. But some of these people, as you just said, clearly do believe that they are living in an age just on the brink of opening Auschwitz in Oregon. Those people have to be de-radicalized. It has to be explained to them that they are in no such situation. I think there are all sorts of reasons why they've got there, including an abominable understanding of history and an unbelievable lack of education among people who claim to be educated. But there are these people and they need to be deprogrammed in ways which I try to explain. There are also people who are hooked on campaigning. The late Australian conser uh, conservative philosopher, Kenneth Minogue, liberal philosopher, one should really say, because he was in the true sense, had an had um, something he called St. George in Retirement Syndrome in his book, The Liberal Mind. And this is that St. George, after slaying the dragon, is so hooked on the fame and the glory of dragon slaying that he staggers around the land looking for more and more dragons to slay until there are no dragons. And eventually he's found swinging his sword at thin air. Now, some of these people in Portland and elsewhere are clearly wishing they had been St. George. They wish they'd been at the Stonewall Inn. They wish that they'd been at the March on Washington with Martin Luther King. They wish that they'd been at the forefront of the women's rights movement, but they just missed it by a few decades. So how do you get in this intersectional era without any other form of ethics, how do you get respected by your peers? By sort of showing, you know, I missed the big event, but my God, I'd have been at the vanguard if I'd been there. And so I will fight as hard now as if it was on the night of Stonewall or the March on Washington. And these people are campaigning and auditioning for virtue in our age. And that also has to be deprogrammed. We have to show people that it's not decent to behave after the point of victory as if you're, you never had it worse. You know, the analogy I use is, is on all of these rights issues, it's like watching a train just drawing into the station finally after a really necessary and legitimate journey, and a progressive journey. It's like watching a train gently coming into the place it should be and then suddenly getting ahead of steam and going careering off down the tracks into the distance and ruining a load of lives. And that's the case in the race uh, issue, it's the case in the gay issue, it's the case in the trans issue, and it's the case in the, uh, in the gender and sex issue. But, and this is maybe the worst news I have, <laughs> there's something else as well. I don't any longer believe that all the people doing these things are doing it for good reasons. I think something else is happening. And one of the reasons I go into trans in such detail is to explain, because you see it in trans. There is a reason why trans has been picked up so big in the last few years. And I've charted it, I've followed it, I've laid it out. The aim is not to build a coalition to genuinely support people who think that they are in the wrong body. The aim is to divide everybody using trans as the battering ram. Now, I probably don't have the time to go into the detail, but I explain it in the book. To an extent, black people are being used in the same way. Ethnic minorities are being used in the same way. Women are very reluctantly also being used in the same way. And gay people are being used in the same way. They are being used by a certain portion of people not to build a coalition, but to divide everybody, to hammer everybody apart. And once you identify it, as I do in the book, you see what they're doing and you see the urgent need to stop them. Urgent need to stop them. We cannot allow people who wish to pull apart these societies to be allowed to divide the sexes to make women war against men and men against women and black people against white people and everyone against this race and everyone against that race and every race against each other and for the gays to be against the trans and the trans against the gays. We, we can't have this fight of weaponization. 
you know, it's just horrifying. It's like watching an unraveling. And when you watch an unraveling, you have to work out how you, you, how you tie the society back up together. And I try to explain, in particular in the chapter and towards the end of the book on forgiveness, I try to explain how we can start to move back towards an understanding of each other rather than using each other as battering rams to get something else. And I just think this is so important. And if there's one thing I want people to focus on the book, it's this. After you've worked out what's going on, work out how to mend it. Because God knows we need to. And that was Douglas Murray, author of the new book, The Madness of Crowds, now available wherever books are sold. If you enjoy my work, please consider becoming a supporter through Subscribestar, Patreon, or PayPal. As an independent journalist, this work is only possible through your support. Just a few dollars a month helps me a lot. You can find the links in the description.